The views and opinions expressed on this program do not necessarily represent those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents. For more information on this or other KUCI programs, visit KUCI.org or KUCITalk.org. I find this scientifically fascinating. You're listening to KUCI Irvine. Disengage this computer now. Broadcasting at 88.9 FM. No computer. And on the web at KUCI.org. The most reliable computer ever made. And streaming through iTunes. Don't expect any mercy during the Great Robot Wars. Anteater Radio brought to you by machines. Returning to normal broadcast in 3, 2, 1. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to UCI Conversations, a weekly public affairs program dedicated to exploring everything in the land of blue and gold with interviews of UCI leaders, innovators, and last but not least, zot, 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 everyday anteaters. Hello, everybody. This is UCI Conversations. I'm your host, Kevin Bossenmeyer, and my guest today is the one the only one-of-a-kind UCI physics and astronomy professor, Virginia Trimble. She has 50 years of experience at UCI, having arrived here in 1971. At the time, she was the youngest member of the physics department, and now, after all these years, she is the oldest active member. I'm looking forward to everything she has to say. Welcome, Professor Trimble. How are you today? Overworked and underpaid, same as you. <laughs> oh, yes, definitely. So please, let's just start from the very beginning. Where did you grow up, and what did you like to do when you were a kid? Okay. Um, my parents built in the San Fernando Valley just before World War II, so that I was born actually in Hollywood, but I grew up in the San Fernando Valley, graduated from Toluca Lake Grammar School, Lecant Junior High, and Hollywood High School. And my activities at that time were conditioned by several things. One was being in Hollywood. Another was that I was born very nearsighted. And until I was about 13, I never saw a face up close except my mother's. And so I'm very bad at recognizing faces. On the other hand, I learned to read early. And I read anything and everything. I still read, you know, cereal boxes if there's nothing else available. So I did a lot of reading. But I also did a lot of swimming, some horseback riding, uh, some marching around the neighborhood with the other neighborhood kids. Early on, we played cowboys and Indians, which I believe is no longer politically correct. But we also played a game called Wing Ding Do, which I won't bother to try to explain. I think I had a very stable, happy childhood. I went to one grammar school, one junior high, and one high school. I applied to one undergraduate institution, UCLA, and they took me. I applied to one graduate school, Caltech, which in those days did not take women. Yeah. The fine print in their catalog said that for graduate students, women were admitted only under exceptional circumstances. And yeah. what that meant was sometimes gals came with a husband in a package deal. Some gals came because a professor joined the faculty there from someplace else that took women. And I was the first without a package deal. On the other hand, I had a Woodrow Wilson scholarship, so I came with my own money for the first year. And I think that may have been my special circumstance. Got you. Wow. Well, so you went to Hollywood High. Do you want to drop any names? Who did you go to high school with? In my own class, actually, nobody very famous. Carol Wells was in our class, Richard Everard Horton, 
nobody very famous in my class. Before and after, yes, but... Okay. And when did science start to really grab a hold of you? I'm not sure it ever did. I grew up with science, so my father was a chemist, quite a good uh, chemist, though I think rather a bad businessman, which is why it helped that I could bring in some money fairly early. But I grew up with ideas of science that you had ideas and you tried to compare them with the real world, and either they worked or they didn't. I remember at age six failing completely to understand how a certain kind of pulley worked. and It drove me to tears finally. <laughs> but I took really all the serious classes that were available in junior high and high school. It wasn't just the science. We you know I took all the history that was there, all the English that was there. And I did Latin for my language and took all the Latin that was available in high school. And I started singing fairly early for a variety of reasons. I just one of the things I did. And so I took quite a lot of music through junior high and high school as well. In the end, here I've been teaching sometimes the physics of music class. My qualification is I play 16 instruments all badly. Wow. 16. Wow. Well, but you understand, so, um, many things in the families of song flutes and trumpet work in more, more or less the same way. Ditto for ukulele plus guitar. If you learn guitar first, the ukulele seems trivial. If you learn ukulele first, then you need some extra fingers when you get your first guitar. Interesting. So, obviously, you were a good student because you went to UCLA, right? Well, I graduated with a perfect straight A record from high school. There were no, there was nothing above a four point zero. That was the highest grade you could have, and I did graduate from high school with straight A's. At UCLA, I got two B's. One, I should be ashamed to say, was in electricity and magnetism. To this day, I sympathize with Lord Kelvin, who did not understand the displacement current. And the other was in my first semester of ancient Egyptian hieroglyphs. But those are my only two Bs as an undergraduate. Was that traumatic for you? <laughs> well, okay. Let me, let, me, let me do a little song and dance about the ancient Egyptian. You know, the idea of reading and writing hieroglyphs strikes a lot of people as a really neat thing to do. And one year while I was at UCLA, a woman member of the faculty whose name is Miriam Lichtstein, she born in 1914, I think, was announced as going to teach hieroglyphs. The first day, 50 people showed up for that class. It became clear immediately this was not a, a sort of fortune-telling class. It was going to be a serious language. And so the second day, 11 people showed up. <laughs> five finished the first semester, and three went on to the second semester. Of the five who finished the first semester, three of us got B's and two of us got C's. It was the three B's that went on to the second semester and got A's the second semester. Oh, okay. But so it wasn't, I was like not, you, it wasn't like you were underachieving. You actually were at the top of your class. Well, I was, yeah, I was at the top of my class. But, you know, it's very difficult to learn a language whose structure is fundamentally different from your own. Egyptian is not quite as different from English as, say, Chinese, but it's it's a fair struggle. And the writing is halfway between an alphabet and ideograms of Chinese, so the writing is complicated to master. The three of us who finished that second quarter, second semester, one was a, a, mission, a, a minister who wanted to study the Coptic religion. The sacred language of Coptic is a descendant of ancient Egyptian, just as Latin is the traditional sacred language of the Catholics. So he was studying the Egyptian in order to do a better job with Coptic. That was okay. Ms. Lichtheim approved of that. Sorry, Professor Dr. Lichtheim. The 
other student was a guy who was a perpetual student. He was in his 30s, and he still hadn't gotten his first degree. And she somehow approved of that, I guess. She did not approve of me. There I was, this astronomy physics major. What was I doing taking hieroglyphs? Well, that's fun. I enjoyed it. <laughs> but we remained friends until she died. I, we exchanged letters. I saw her once after she moved to Israel. In fact, my husband and I had dinner with her in, in Jerusalem. Is Latin and Egyptian, are they similar at all or no, completely? No. Latin is like Spanish and French. It's a Romance language. Mm. It has more complicated grammar than English does, as do as does Russian and lots of others. But it is an Indo-European language with a word, mater and potter are mother and father, soror is sister, sorority. It's, it's recognizably cognate with Spanish and French and also with English and German and Russian and so forth. Ancient Egyptian, Egyptian in general, well, Egypt now, the language is Arabic, but ancient Egyptian and Coptic are generally spoken of as not quite Semitic languages, but they're closely related. For instance, to take the one example that I figured out all by myself, when you study Egyptian grammar, ancient Egyptian grammar, the the word, the verb that's used for the paradigm is sejim f, he hears. And the Hebrew word for hear is shma. And sejim and shma, when you look at the letters, are clearly the same word. So ancient Egyptian is related to Arabic and Hebrew. But it's also related to the Berber languages of northern, of northern Africa. Wow. Do you have a photographic memory? Not entirely, and not as good as it used to be. But I can often remember where on the page something was if I want to go back and find it. Mm, wow. <laughs> That's convenient. Yes. Well, you know, you have a certain number of brain cells somehow, and the fact that I don't recognize faces <laughs> has left <laughs> the brain cells for other purposes. <laughs> Just as I suspect the fact of being rather Aspergerish or a little autistic or however you want to call it, has left some other circuits for other purposes. Some people were asking me, how did I feel about things? Well, I'm not sure that I do, really. I, at least I have a very high threshold for both emotional and physical pain. I'm generally a fairly happy person, but I suspect this has simply left other brain cells for other purposes. Oh, okay. So did you go right to graduate school from UCLA, or how yes. did that all work out? Well, I skipped a semester in grammar school, so I started junior high and high school the off semester in February, but I cut a semester off, so I did UCLA in three and a half years and graduate school in about three and a half years, so I went from high school graduation to a PhD in seven years and three months. Wow. People, people, wow. Could, people could still do that in principle, but they don't. They choose, for whatever reason, to take fewer courses now than we used to. The, the UCLA norm was five courses a semester. The Caltech norm, our first year or two of graduate school, the norm was six courses each term. In your college career, were there any classes that gave you a hard time? Well, obviously, <laughs> electricity and magnetism and the first semester of hieroglyphs. Those were my needs. <laughs> In general, I mean, other than that, no. I mean, I took a lot of fun things. I, I did a year of linguistics and uh, a year of um, paleontology. The paleontology final exam, we were had expected to explain how a cephalopod worked or something. You know, I said, 
I just drew the shell and I said the the, the uh, hatchet foot is under the sand and I got credit for it. <laughs> no, I, wow. I I enjoyed being a student, but I was mm-hmm. doing a fair amount of other frivolous things too. I sang with several choirs at one point. I had sort of choir practice every night, and Mother said that was too much. Mm-hmm. She made me quit one. Mm-hmm. The, the thing I failed was sorority. My mother had really wanted to go to college, and her folks would pay for her brother to go, and he didn't. But they wouldn't pay for her to go. So she did a secretarial course and worked in title insurance until she married. But mother had really wanted to go to college, and for her, being a sorority girl was part of the college experience. And I tried. Really, I did. I pledged Alpha Omicron Pi. I'm sure they're great people. I encountered the woman who'd been my big sister some years later. She was the administrator of a nursing home somewhere. I couldn't tell you where anymore. Uh, Jerry Lynn Rollins, Rollinson, her name was. Anyway, I failed sorority. I couldn't recognize my sorority sisters when I saw them because I can't recognize anybody. <laughs> and I went hungry because they didn't serve breakfast until 7.30. And I was taking 8 o'clock classes, and we were a considerable walk away. We were at the bottom of the hill. We were quite a long walk away from the, the physics and astronomy classes I was taking. So I didn't, I didn't get enough to eat. And that made me bad-tempered. <laughs> and we were supposed to be at the study table from 8 to 10 every night, and I wanted to be in bed by 9. <laughs> so I failed sorority for a lot of reasons. Well, Kim, can you describe this, you know, not being able to recognize? So literally, when you see people, you don't recognize them? Is that it? I frequently do not. My husband mercifully didn't look like anybody else. But on <laughs> one occasion, I failed to recognize even him. And he wasn't offended because I told him before that, that on one occasion I'd failed to recognize my own father and the man across the street when I saw them unexpectedly. Yeah. But Joe and I married when we'd known each other for only bits of three weekends. And so we had, we had a lot of getting acquainted to do, and we enjoyed that, too. Well, so you got married after three weeks of knowing each other? Well, portions of three weekends. How did you meet? Fred, well, he was a distinguished physicist, and I'd seen him give talks at conferences, but not actually spoken to him. He yeah. was tenured at the University of Maryland. He was scheduled for an invited talk at USC, and he wrote and asked, could he take me to dinner afterwards? And I wrote back and said, sure, why don't I just pick you up at the airport and deposit you? So we had dinner together that first night, and the waitress took us for a married couple, and he thought that was a good idea, so we did. <laughs> so he initiated Meeting you, you didn't know he knew you, but uh, he reached out and, and you guys. Well, he had seen me at the same conferences after. I mean, we, we discussed this afterwards, and he had indeed recognized me as someone who'd been in the audience for a couple of his talks at conferences. Hmm. There um, were not a lot of women in science in those days. <laughs> you know, I forgot that. Right. I have pictures of meetings. You know, where there are twenty or thirty or forty or fifty people, and I'm the only girl in the conference. Right. Excuse me just for a moment, Professor, while I do a guest ID. If you join us late, you're listening to UCI Conversations. I'm your host, Kevin Bostenmeyer, and my guest today is Senior UCI Astronomy Professor Virginia Trimble. She's been at UCI since 1971, and we're talking about her early years and how oftentimes she was one of just a few women in a vast sea of men in the sciences. So what was that like? You know, did did that intimidate you at all, or did no. you? No. No. Let me quote a woman colleague who's essentially my own generation. She did her degrees in the United Kingdom. Her first degree is from the University of Edinburgh, in fact, 
and she turned up at the University of Edinburgh and looked around. She said, "Look at all the lovely men." <laughs> and that's that's certainly always been my attitude. I I never felt that it was a disadvantage being a woman. Maybe it was, and I didn't. Maybe I was too stupid to notice. That's it's possible, but it never kept me from doing the sorts of things that I wanted to do. I was the second woman assigned time at Palomar. The first was Vera Rubin, who has a telescope name for her now, who died a few years ago. I got into Caltech without any fuss and bother. Mm-hmm. They didn't start taking yeah. undergraduate women until 1972. The barriers fell just as I came up to them. <laughs> uh-huh. You know, for fellowships. And, you know, I don't really know that much about fellowships. How do they work, and how did things come together for you there? Well, there there, there are several different kinds. The thing that makes a difference for graduate students is one that comes with enough money to support yourself and covers your tuition as a student. And if you have one of those, then you can go to almost any university you want because the fellowships are at least as selective as the university. And when you get there, you can work on what you want with somebody of your own choosing. If you're supported on the – well, if the alternative is to be supported – on a grant by a faculty member, and then you have to work on his project or her project. Whereas if you come with your own money, you have a choice of projects. Later on, there are fellowships that take you, like, to be a postdoc someplace. I had a a NATO postdoctoral fellowship that I took to England in 1969. Then there are the kind that are just honorary. Most of the professional scientific societies, the American Physical Society, the American Association for the Advancement of Science and many others declare some of their members to be fellows. And that doesn't come with any money. It comes with a nice certificate and maybe a gold medal. And you hang the certificate on the wall and you put the gold medal on your desk and people are supposed to admire it. But these are regarded as significant honors. And if you get several of them, you you get promoted. You know the University of California has this incredible complicated system of six flavors of assistant professor and six flavors of associate professor and nine or ten flavors of professor and you have to be promoted up you know step by step up this ladder to get salary raises and to keep your job and anytime you get an honor it's good for a promotion professor i really get the sense that you are extraordinary in your field am i underestimating or overestimating or i don't know the answer to that i mean in graduate school I encountered for the first time, frankly, students who were better than I was at what I was trying to do. And in due course, they got jobs at Caltech or at Princeton or at Harvard. I was not offered a job at Caltech or Princeton or Harvard or Berkeley. I had jobs at UC Irvine and the University of Maryland, which are, are fine. You know, I'm not yeah. complaining. <laughs> yeah. But I think, yeah. I, think I, I think I got roughly the kinds of jobs I deserved. I was not the top of the heap. Uh-huh. I was pretty was good. The, you know, what was the difference? Boy, uh, instamonks normal students, you were at the top of your class, but then, you know, you, you excelled and you did well. What was the cut above? Like, what was it just like they were just brilliant? And, you know, you were you were very sharp, but... I'm not quite sure. Um, part of it is a lot of it is creativity. Thinking mm. of something to do that nobody else has done. Mm. Or thinking of a better way to do something that lots of people know it needs to be done but don't quite know how to do it. Mm-hmm. And the, the the brightest of the graduate students at Caltech while I was there could both build apparatus and do very complicated theoretical calculations. 
He's now emeritus at Princeton. But he was involved for a while in the team that built one of the first instruments for the Hubble Space Telescope. And when the telescope turned out not to focus properly, he simply gave up that whole thing and went off into something totally different, also of great value to the community. Mm. People think of things to do that nobody else thought of or that nobody else knew how to do quite as well. Mm-hmm. I mean, I've mm-hmm. had some original ideas of my own, and I've carried them out, but they haven't been things that the rest of the world was just panting for. Mm-hmm. One of the things I thought of doing that I thought the world should be anxious for, turned out it wasn't. Every 10 years, the astronomy community gathers panelists to decide what we want to have funded for the next decade. This goes back to the 1960s. And I decided to do an analysis of all the reports and see what fraction of the things that had been recommended got done and whether they were good or bad or successful or failures. And I made that analysis available, and nobody wanted it. <laughs> Interesting. So when you came out of school, do you recall, like, what was really exciting for you? What were you excited about doing research in? You mean when I got my Ph.D.? Yeah. Okay. There were several things that were really very new then. Pulsars had just been discovered, and when I went to Cambridge, uh, Jocelyn Bell was still there as a postdoc, and we made friends. Quasars were quite new. The microwave background was quite new. X-ray binaries were just beginning to be understood. There were lots of neat things to work on. I'd had the good luck to do a thesis on the Crab Nebula, which is a remnant of a stellar explosion that was seen in 1054, and it has a pulsar at the center. And that made me a saleable commodity as an astronomer. I was invited to give talks at conferences and offered a a variety of jobs. When I came to Irvine, I had like four other offers. And when I first got out of graduate school, I had like five offers. And I took, for my first year, a rather odd one, I took a teaching position at Smith College for my first year out of graduate school. I wanted to go to England, and I didn't get the NATO fellowship the first year, but I got the NATO fellowship the next year and went to England. So I really wanted a one-year job. Smith College wanted a one-year astronomer, and it works fine. Uh-huh. And Smith College is in England? Uh, Smith College is Northampton, Massachusetts. Oh. No, when I went okay. to England, I went to the University of Cambridge. Oh, okay. Now, Smith is one of these seven sisters things that all the women from rich families used to go there. <laughs> Wellesley and Radcliffe and Barnard and those places. Smith is one of them. Was that a postdoc at, at Cambridge, or were you teaching, or...? Uh, Cambridge was a postdoc. It was one funded by NATO, the North Atlantic Treaty Organization, used to fund fellowships for people from one country to go to another. This is the right way to say it. And I wanted to go to England, and it turned out that a NATO fellowship was a good way to do that. I wanted to go to England because of a man, of course. (laughs) Not the one I eventually married. (laughs) And not even, in the end, he was not even my best friend among the English astronomers. My best friend among the English astronomers is still alive, and we email every few weeks. <laughs> uh, yes. uh, did you teach at Smith College? Oh, yes. That, that was a teaching job. I was an assistant professor. What I learned and, was that your okay. rich people are easier to teach than poor people. Why so? There's the obvious one. You can ask them to buy an extra book. But in addition, on average, and it's still true and it's still a shame to our country, rich kids get better educations. They live in places where the schools are better. Their parents can hire tutors if they need them. Sometimes their parents send them to private schools. Rich kids get a better education. So when they get to college, it's easier to teach them. Mm -hmm. They can read and write and do a little bit of arithmetic. Not much, but a little bit. (laughs) 
That's that's just the way it is in not just this country, but most places. It Mm -hmm. pays to be rich. So you were at Smith College for a year, and then did you come to UCI after that? No, the Smith College was my first job out of graduate school, and then the two-year postdoc in England. Oh, gotcha. And and then I came back to the States and came here in 1971, married Joe Weber in March of 72, and we shared our jobs for 28 years. When you say shared your jobs, you mean just sharing what no, you we, we shared. We, no, we shared our jobs. We were at each year for 28 years, we were at the University of California, Irvine, January to June, and the University of Maryland, July to December. And we each taught both places and had students and jobs and committees and you know, stuff. Wow. That's pretty it's sim- unique. It's a simple solution to two-career family problem, and I don't know anybody else who's ever done it. <laughs> it seems like a lot of fun. You got to live in two different places for a well, whole career. I, for, well, I mean, Joe died in 2000, and I I haven't been back to Maryland since 2003. But it worked well. You know, But about the time you, you can't stand your department chair for another week, it's time to move. This is good. <laughs> no, it worked mm-hmm. well. It worked partly because we were not raising children. Joe and his first wife had had four boys. His first wife was his, his high school sweetheart. <laughs> And they raised four children who were grown by the time Joe and I married. So we weren't trying to raise children. And we had skills that were useful both places. He was a physicist. I'm basically an astronomer. But we fit into, you know, a physics and astronomy department both places. You're listening to KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine, the UCI Conversation Show. I'm your host, Kevin Bossenmeyer. And my guest today is UCI Senior Astronomy Professor Virginia Trimble, who now describes how she and her husband ended up at UCI in 1971. How did you guys come to UCI? Well, in those days, you couldn't find out what jobs were going. These days, there are registers of all the places that want to hire assistant professors and postdocs and what have you. That didn't exist back in 1968. When you finished graduate school... Your thesis advisor typically recommended you to some place. My thesis advisor was very anxious to get rid of me by then. He recommended me to a number of places. <laughs> I could have gone to University of Indiana, or I could have gone to the CIA, believe it or not, or I could have gone to the U.S. Naval Observatory in D.C., and there was at least one other. But I wanted to come back to California by 1971. My mother was dying of cancer, and while she wouldn't have said she wanted me home, she was glad to have me home. And I like California. I mean, it's home. <laughs> uh-huh. And, wow, you've been at UCI a long time. Is it completely different? Have there been different eras at UCI? How would you describe that journey? There have been some some major changes. One is demographics. About the time I started teaching here, we had the first wave of refugees from Vietnam. And their kids were incredibly hardworking. The large minority demographic here now is Chinese Americans, some of whom are absolutely brilliant. And we have students coming from China as well who are also very bright and very hardworking. There's no doubt about that. Our own undergraduate population is almost half uh, Latinx, mostly Mexican-born, or that's unfair, mostly children of parents who were born in Mexico, I think. And there were almost none of those in 71, 72. So there have been mm. lots of demographic changes. There have been fashions in how hard the students work. There have been 
decades when they we had lots of lots of hardworking students. Decades, not so much. Hmm. Interesting. It's 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 got it's got to be. I mean, humans haven't changed. <laughs> humans have not evolved that much in fifty years. It's got to be fashions, and just how much you do and what you do and why. Mm-hmm. And heaven knows the the undergraduates have many skills that I don't have. I happen to have some that they don't have. <laughs> so you know, it averages out. What are your your strong skills? I don't know. I mean, if you give me a piece of vocal music, I can sing it and get the right notes. <laughs> I've taught because once upon a time we were a small department. It was expected that everybody could teach everything. And between here and Maryland, I have taught a very, very wide range of courses. I have what Richard Feynman called the arrogance of a physicist. I think I can learn to do anything that anybody else can do. <laughs> I've, I've had relatively few failures in this respect. I mean, my big failure in that respect was ice skating. I've tried four times over my life, starting at age six, and I never have learned to do it. I'm missing some uh-huh. fundamental principle, and I don't know what it is. I did learn to drive a stick shift car, although I failed the first time. Uh-huh. Have you hung up your skate? Yes, I, found, <laughs> I, I, bought, I bought my own pair the year I was at Smith College. And I was afraid when I went to Cambridge that I'd have to use them because it used to be the River Cam froze every winter and you were supposed to skate down to Granchester for breakfast. But mercifully, the Cam did not freeze the two years I was there, and so the fact that I couldn't skate didn't matter. When I came back to California, somebody offered to teach me, but it just didn't really work work out. I've never learned to ice skate. But I learned to do most of the things that I wanted or felt I needed to do. Professor, may I ask how old you are? Seventy-seven. That's, that's okay. public information. It's not, it's not a secret. Okay. I was born in November of 1943. <laughs> and you're still a full-time professor? Yeah. I'm teaching the Physics 19, the Great Ideas of Physics, this quarter, and I'm scheduled for graduate-level general relativity spring quarter. The Great Ideas of Physics. Wow. Well, it's one of these things for non-majors. We offer quite a few of those across the School of Physical Sciences because Everybody has to take a certain number of breadth requirements, and one of them is sort of quantitative stuff. And so we offer courses that fulfill a science breadth requirement that doesn't require the students to do any calculus. So we have cosmology, and there are geosciences courses over in earth sciences. I think the chemists have one or two. And we offer a fair range of things. There's astronomy and space science, and physics of music is another of those courses. We've offered physics of athletics at times, physics of energy and the environment, and the great ideas course. I don't, I don't know who invented the great ideas course. It's not really a great idea, but <laughs> it's, it's doable. I mean, they, they get a little flavor of relativity and a little flavor of quantum mechanics is what it comes down to. When I was doing a little research, I noted that you said that you were not a particularly good team player. Do you still hold to that? Yeah. It wasn't part of the job description for my generation. People coming through the sciences now, at least physics and astronomy, and I think also certainly biology and and many of the other sciences, a lot of the important work is done by teams, not just of tens, but of hundreds or even thousands of people. The first announcement of a burst of gravitational radiation from the LIGO group had 1,000 authors. Later papers have had 3,000 authors. Wow. If I'm part of a group, I tend either to say, I don't care, you guys do whatever you want, just put my name at the end, or I decide to take over and I want to do things exactly my way. 
That's an exaggeration, but not enormously. Mm-hmm. I'm a pretty fair follower and a pretty good leader, but I'm not a terribly good team player, I think. Gotcha. And I've noticed that the size of the universe is something that has interested you. Is that true? And how big is the universe? It's a question one gets asked quite often, and therefore I have some sense of standard stock answers that come out of they come well they come out of the history of science. I mean, as people get old, they tend to take an interest in history. So a lot of my recent work has been my papers have been in history of astronomy, history of physics. But the short answer is the universe is always bigger than the part we can see, and so far it's always turned out to be bigger than the previous generation thought it was. Whether it's finite or infinite. I think is not known now, maybe never will be. But mm-hmm. it's certainly bigger than the part we can see. Mm-hmm. Man. And whether there's what? more than one universe is certainly also possible. I mean, some of these multiverse ideas I find intriguing or fun, or I would like it to be like that. Yeah. Doesn't that just... Does that blow your mind? It does. I don't think of... so. But, you know, there's some very good science fiction built around this. It's a chap named John Wyndham wrote several stories of the uh, many worlds idea of Hugh Everett where characters in the story leak from one rib of the universe to an adjacent one where things are very similar but not quite the same. In particular, for instance, you're married to somebody different <laughs> or you have a different job. It, it makes some very good science fiction anyway. And would you have predicted in your career the area of astronomy that you do now has it just been a a progression to where you've ended up or did you actually think like oh this is where i want to go and and kind of always have your sights on that i don't think i particularly aimed in any one direction it's certainly true that back in 1968 there was no gamma ray astronomy and almost no x-ray astronomy radio astronomy is still fairly primitive the uses of computers were just getting started, and so many of the things I've done over the years wouldn't have been possible in 1968. I've used space data for several things. Academe has existed, of course, since, well, the University of Bologna is more than 800 years old, right? I was there for a conference when they celebrated their 800th anniversary in 1988. Anyway, um, Academe has been there for a long time. I think it still will be with us you know, for generations to come. The job description has changed. We're expected now to do more outreach to the community. Other things are, are very similar. There have been professional organizations for centuries, and somebody has to be officers and do the work. Mm-hmm. There have been peer review panels for decades at least where somebody has to decide whose paper is going to be published and who gets the grant to build something. These things haven't changed very much, but the way they're done now has changed. All of the peer review now really is online. So it's not fun anymore. I used to enjoy when a group got together for three or four days to choose all the the observing programs for the Hubble Space Telescope or the Chandra X-ray satellite or whatever. I used to enjoy that kind of thing. But now that's all it's all online and virtual. It's not fun anymore. And I understand that you used to do a lot of reviews. In fact, I understand that you would read all the major I did that for 16 years. Um, it wasn't my idea originally. A chap named Can you Howard describe Bond. That? Can you describe well, that to us? A chap named Howard talk? Bond took over the editorship of the publications of the Astronomical Society of the Pacific, which has always been a poor relative in the journal family to Apche and 
so forth. And he had an idea that it would be nice to begin the first issue of his first year with a review of all the things that had happened the previous year. So he asked me to do it. So I did it. And for as long as he ran that journal, I did it every year. And then he handed over to a delightful woman named Ann Cowley, who not only encouraged me to continue to do this, but helped to alphabetize the references and check them out. And then she handed over to another woman who didn't like it. And so after 15 years, it came to a screeching halt, got moved to another journal for one year. Meanwhile, I'd picked up picked up and put down a couple of times, but in the end picked up two co-authors, who each of whom did a specific section. Marcus Ashwan uh-huh. up at Lock- Lockheed Missile up north did The Sun, and uh, Carl Hansen was doing a sort of an exobiology, a life in the universe section, and I did the other 11. We ended up, each year there were 13 sections, of which thir- the, section 13 was always full of mistakes, either ours or somebody else's. It got quite frivolous. But it was fun to do. I was a fast reader. I was good at taking notes and good at putting things together. And it stopped because the third editor didn't like it and wanted me to pay full-page charges. $10,000 is a big chunk, even out of a full professor's salary, and I decided I didn't want to do that. And the other thing, it became harder and harder to get paper copies of all the journals. I could read 5,000 papers a year on paper. I couldn't possibly do it online. Mm-hmm. It's terribly inefficient. It's like going back to ancient Roman scrolls and having to go through word. <laughs> anyway, it, could, it, it became physically impossible. At the same time, it became financially unattractive. Mm-hmm. I'd, always paid, I'd always paid the page charges for this. This was not something that the journal publishers <laughs> welcomed for free. If you're just joining us, you're listening to UCI Conversations. I'm your host, Kevin Bossenmeyer, and my guest today is the irrepressible UCI astronomy professor, Virginia Trimble, talking about what she's working on today and what excites her. Here we go. What area of astronomy are you interested in? You know, what, what's really drawing you these days? Well, I, let me say what I've always said. I'm interested in the structure and evolution of stars, galaxies, and the universe and the communities of scientists who study them, which is then you see history and scientometrics. I've worked on specific topics because the topics just happened to land there. My undergraduate was actually Egyptology, never mind that. My second year research project was on white dwarfs. I still kind of defend that territory. My thesis was the Crab Nebula. I defend that. I worked for a while on stellar structure and evolution using a then state-of-the-art computer code developed by a colleague in Poland who had very limited computer resources, and so he developed a program that was undemanding. And so when you got to a really good computer, by the standards of the time, you could do some very impressive things. I've worked on statistics of binary stars, various other things, but it's always just what happened to land in my lap at the time. What does that mean, the specifics of binary stars? Is that dual stars, two stars? Uh, Most stars, in fact exist in pairs. The sun is relatively unusual in not having a stellar companion. But if you want to understand star formation, you need to understand these pairs, the separations of the two stars, the period they take to go around each other, the eccentricity of the orbit, the masses and mass ratio of the two stars. You need to know about the population in order to be able to match it with your theory of star formation. 
you don't understand star formation until you can predict the statistical properties of the binary distribution. Wow. I got into that originally trying to understand which systems would evolve to become X-ray sources. I've been recently getting into Newton and gravity and, and realizing how physicists look at gravity like, well, why does something, and tell me if I'm wrong, Professor, like, why does it drop? Like, I'm, I have a sense of like, you know, why doesn't it go sideways or why doesn't it go up? And is that, is that true? <laughs> philosophy, my philosophy course I took as an undergraduate um, would hold something in his hand and ask how many how many people were willing to bet that if he let go it would fly south and turn blue. <laughs> okay, um, gravity is well described by Newton's equations until you get to very strong fields or very rapid motion, and then you need Einstein's equations. But they cover the same territory, really. When Newton wrote, Newton wrote in Latin, he said no fingo hypothetes. He wasn't going to make up a theory of why these things happen. He was going to write equations that described what happens. General uh -huh. relativity is exactly the same. It's a good description of what happens. We can calculate what the signal should look like when two black holes merge or when an active galaxy swallows a star and spits out a jet of gas. We can calculate what will happen. And we can calculate and do well and get the right answer. So far, general relativity has passed every test thrown at it. It must fail when things are both dense and small. That's another issue. It's got to fail at some level. But so far, it's passed every test we can throw at it. But that doesn't answer the question, why is gravity like it is? Newton didn't know. Einstein didn't know. I don't know. But it doesn't bother me. I think that's <laughs> maybe that's the attitude of a certain kind of physicist, not to be bothered. I mean, what Feynman said was, if you weren't distressed by quantum mechanics, you didn't understand it. It's another case where we can calculate all kinds of things, but just why it's like that. Einstein didn't know. Feynman didn't know. I don't know. Is gravity universal? Like, is the gravity that applies to us on Earth, is it the same gravity that's in the universe? It's just that there are different conditions and different environments so the, yes i mean that's that's what newton he called his universal gravity the same equations describe the apple falling off the tree the moon going around the earth the expansion of the universe two black holes spiraling in together to make a burst of gravitational waves the same equations describe both what happens on earth and the solar system the galaxy and the universe and we don't know any exceptions to that there are people who thought that Perhaps the strength of gravity, the, what's called Newton's constant of gravity, G, might have been larger in the past or might be larger or smaller far away. But all the data we have say that the equations are the same everywhere, everywhere and every when, if you, if you like. So where does quantum physics come in? Ah, that's the physics of things that are very small, of atoms and nuclei and particles. It begins to be visible on scales that you can almost see but not quite. And quantum computing, of course, is a, a buzzword right now because there are ways probably that you can use quantum mechanics to make computers more efficient. But it's the physics of atoms and molecules, the nuclei of atoms, the particles of which those are made, the protons and neutrons and the electrons and the neutrinos and so forth, those are described well by quantum mechanics. And again, <laughs> um, the calculations always give the answer that agrees with observations even though in some cases 
one doesn't like the idea. One would like it to be different somehow, but it isn't. It's the way, again, the equations describe what happens on many scales. Can you tell me who you think the top three scientists have been in history? Well, my, I'm old, but not that old. <laughs> uh, somebody said it was Newton, Maxwell, and Rutherford. Notice that doesn't include Einstein. I mean, Newton has got to be in your list no matter what. It was Maxwell who more or less put electromagnetism into decent order so people don't understand magnets and electric currents and light, radiation, x-rays, all the rest. Rutherford clarified the structure of atoms. He was very much an experimenter. He was Australian-born, I think. Anyway, uh, he worked in Manchester for a while and in Canada for a while and then Cambridge for a while. And he did a lot toward putting atomic structure into proper condition. If you want to include Einstein, then you have to have four. Mm-hmm. And is there anybody impressing you today who is like, this person is absolutely brilliant? Can you narrow it down to one or two? Or I, I'm sure there, I'm sure there are people like that, but they're not in my field. When Einstein, well, when Newton did gravity, he was beginning gravity. When Maxwell did his equations, he was beginning our understanding of electromagnetism. Rutherford began our understanding of the nuclear atom. Einstein began, in fact, part of quantum mechanics, but also began relativity. There are people, I'm sure, like this, but they're in fields that are now just getting started. And I don't mm. know who they are or even what the fields are. Uh-huh. Wow. There's some, there's some absolutely brilliant physicists and astronomers right now, but they won't go down in history quite the way the three or four most famous mm-hmm. ones out of physics have because they're doing something else, and I don't know what. It might be artificial intelligence. It might be quantum computing. Mm-hmm. It might be some bit of biosciences and biomolecular sciences that I don't even know about. So you're at a, a ripe young age now. What keeps you going? It sounds like you're having a lot of fun. I've always had a lot of fun. <laughs> Maybe it's I'm easy to please. I mean, I'm writing an obituary at the moment of somebody who was treated rather badly by the community, so I have a chance to strike a blow in his favor. It's too late for him to appreciate it, but his widow is still alive. Look, I know I have something good to go home to dinner to. That's very important for me. I enjoy food and drink. I have some good books to read. i got to do some laundry tomorrow. I'll drown in, in dirty underwear. What are you reading these days? Well, what I took this morning, in case I was early for the interview, is a non-technical book on quantum mechanics. What I have, what I just finished, uh, by my bedside is a murder mystery by Elliot, by Ellery Queen, which wasn't actually very good. I, I'm not going to read any more Ellery Queen. I sometimes reread Agatha Christie. I'm very fond of Agatha Christie. Thank you again to UCI astronomy professor Virginia Trimble for her insights she has accumulated from 50 years of teaching at UCI. At 77 years old, she continues to explore the cosmos, teach full-time, and have as much fun as possible while she's doing it. She's a wonder, and when you think of her, you cannot help but have a smile on your face. And now turning the page, coming up next at 5 p.m. is Entrepreneur Nation with Ash Kumra, where solutions to common business problems are discussed every week with business experts. Stay tuned. And as always... Thank you again to blues piano man Fred Kaplan for supplying my show theme music. He is the music man. Keep on playing that good old boogie-woogie, Fred. 
You are listening to KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine, the UCI Conversation Show, where every week we explore another corner of the land of blue and gold with interviews of UCI leaders, innovators, and zot, 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 everyday anteaters. I'm your host, Kevin Bossemeyer. I welcome your correspondence at kboss at KUCI.org. And you can hear replays of today's interview or any other archived UCI conversation show simply by going to www.bossenmeyer.com. Just Google www.bossenmeyer.com. As a final note, our healthcare workers are fighting for the lives of our friends, neighbors, and relatives. Help them save these lives. Wash your hands, wear your mask, and keep socially distancing. We are all in this together. And God bless America. We all have to do a better job. So long, everybody. Happy trails.